Money printing madness. Where does money come from? In our last episode, we met with Jordan Walker to talk about uh, how Bitcoin could disrupt the financial system. And in the episode prior to that, we looked at is cash really king? So in today's episode, we're kind of drawing together all of these conversations in com combination with a wider reflection of what's going on in the economy. Inflation out of control, interest rates rising. What does all this mean? And where is all this money coming from? Looking over the last few years, as <laughs> banks have endlessly created money. But how is money even created? It's the kind of question I go all the way back to my economics degree for this episode. And we're going we're gonna to put it all together and try and simplify it all to help you understand this uh, highly complex uh, system. But it's important in the context of what we talked about, Jordan, when we look at the, the flaws of the fiat system, which also wraps into the conversation around the, the question of is cash really king? Sam, this is a, a big topic today. We're going to try and demystify it. We're both feeling a little tired on a Friday morning when we're recording this. Another big one. Yeah, early, early to get into modern money mechanics and into the weeds of that. But we're going to we're going to try and demystify it because you're absolutely right. Then it's critical to understand, because if we if we include, you know, our current currency, fiat money as part of an asset class, it's important to understand it. And as you said, so few people understand where money comes from, how it comes in existence, and you know, particularly crucial to understand in in the context of the last few years what we've lived through. You know, and I will go to some of the figures, you know, when we dive into it further. But the sheer level of money creation since COVID has been off the scale in our lifetimes, and it's important, and it's a real good time to understand that process, which has been going on long before COVID through the whole sort of fractional reserve banking system. So just getting a basic grip on it without getting too technical today, I think it's really important. And, you know, I know that none of us were taught that. Um, I know you studied, you know, you did your economics degree. I did economics A-level, Dan. I think it was the final nail in the coffin for me of not going to university and wanting to escape the Alps and go, go, and, be, <laughs> yes. go and be a ski bum for a while because it, I'll be honest, and maybe it's, it, was, it was, I didn't have a great teacher, but I certainly didn't have any clarity on this from two years of A-level economics. Didn't feel any the clearer was and was falling asleep there and gazing out the window so so i think it is important to try and clarify it and demystify it and i think it was a big shift for me years ago when i did kind of get the nuggets and it did shift my mindset about money and i and it put it gave it put it in a whole new light and i think if that's what we can do for people today that's really helpful yeah a little interesting segue on economics i, I actually had a very good economics teacher at a level and um yeah i was uncertain what to study at university and his his message to me you know i i was getting good grades in economics at school. Uh, his message was, economics will show you how the world really works. Mm. You know, if, if you're going to want to learn, if you, want, if you need to know anything, it's about how the world works. And at the time, I didn't really, really realize the importance of what he was saying. And it's, it's actually now in 2023, looking back at what I did learn about economics, is really, it really underpins and shows how everything right now is broken. And Totally. That's so crucial. And I'm glad you had it. It just shows the difference between a good educator and communicator against somebody who isn't engaging and the difference it can make. And that absolutely, I always say to people, you know, we same with my other talks. I gave a talk last night. I try and make it accessible and, you know, bring some light to it because it's such, it can feel like such a heavy, obfusc obfuscated topic. But actually, it, is, it affects us all. You're universal. We're all part of the economy. Wherever we go, whatever system we're with, whether we're in barter or fiat currency or other assets, we're always in an economy, even if we're swapping mangoes on a beach. So getting to understand that, and if you understand the basics of the kind of basic economic model we're living under, it flows through everything. And as Jordan said last week, we talked about Bitcoin, you know, if you have a morally flawed financial system, then that bleeds into all areas of society. 
So it is the kind of baseline. So it's really critical. Yeah. And, and the final thing on economics is I had the opportunity to meet Richard Werner um, at a conference earlier last year, and we recorded part one of two. We're still we're planning on part two. Maybe we'll do part two on this show. Um, but we also talked about money printing madness on that. But he also talked about how much junk science there is in economics. You know, you, you tend to think of uh, after COVID, all of the mad science, you know, the science coming through with, with within the, the course of public health, but actually he spoke about actually how much of the social science of economics is corrupted. It's oh, <laughs> madness done. I'm not going to go today because it's, it's, I think it's an episode in itself yeah, that it I'd is, love yeah. us to dive, dive into because the more I've, in the last year, actually really dug quite deeply into the weeds of 2008, I've discovered some incredible stuff that really is, you know, bad science, but there are a lot of clues that was propagated on purpose by bad actors that really... As I've always said, and we talk about cycles, the top players and the bankers don't control the cycles, but they do put grenades in there to exacerbate the trends and cycles to their own ends, you know, and to, so I'd argue 2008 was going to happen at some level, but they engineered it to happen in a way and expanded that bubble and made it more dramatic for their own purposes. And that was literally by propagating a bit of bad science, a kind of algorithm into that world that became the norm and had these flaws in it, I'd argue, on purpose. So... That, but there's a whole other episode that I want to save that for because yeah, it's fascinating yeah. <laughs> and, it, and it will shine a light on a lot of people who are confused what happened in 2008. It really clarified things for me a lot further. So that is absolute proofs exactly what you're talking about, which is... Well, yeah, there's a couple of episodes there for us then. There's unravelling the 0708 <laughs> banking crisis because that for me was kind of one of my earlier earlier awakenings because none of it... I was working in banking. I was in the system. I was, you know, I was witnessing... I was not in the control room. I didn't see any of the red buttons. I didn't, you know, wasn't privy to any of the conversations or any of the players that you know, we're, we're, we're pulling the trigger on these things, but it, none of it made sense. Yeah. And the, the medium, like now looking back, the medium, like I'm not starting the new episode, but we'll do yeah. another time. <laughs> but the, the media machine, how important that was. Yes. I didn't yeah. realize now until looking back how interconnected all of these systems are. Yeah. Anyway, I'll bring it back on track. Yeah. Uh, um, so we're going to talk about the magic money tree. And uh, I've got a beautiful garden where I live here in, in Bournemouth. Our bamboo tree is growing like wildfire at the moment. Uh, but it's not growing any money. <laughs> it's not. Print- but the government in the last three years, their money tree is flourishing, <laughs> flourishing. Bumper crops now, absolutely bumper, bumper crops. Bumper crops. Up. Yeah. So what are they doing differently? Well, obviously, this is this is and I've, I've got quite a, U, a lot of US figures in my mind because I've you know I look at a lot of things in terms of dollars. But I know you're looking more the UK side. But just if we put in context from March 2020 to March 2021 in the US alone. You know, this is their kind of own official figures that I got through NASDAQ. You know, they printed $13 trillion in response to COVID. Okay, $5.2 trillion printed allegedly directly for COVID. An extra mysterious $4.5 trillion for quantitative easing on top. But, I mean, that's the same thing. And then another $3 trillion for infrastructure around COVID. So you're talking about $13 trillion. And to put that into context of an increase in the money supply, printing that much more money, that is more than the 13 most expensive wars in US history wow. combined. Okay. And that's why there is a really interesting graph people can look at. Very simple. If you look at the money supply and you look at, you know, its increases and its fluctuation of time in 2020, that graph is sort of trundling along over those bits and in 20, it goes vertical, absolutely almost parabolic vertical. So that spike is so dramatic. And that's also, you know, gives good context to where we are today and why, you know, that was unprecedented. And, and it's important to understand, like we'll get into, that that money creation wasn't because new value was brought into a system. It was literally out of thin air. 
Yes, um, and in the UK, just just by September 2020, just by September 2020, which was just before I started the pandemic podcast, uh, the the UK had spent 210 billion. You know, we're, we're a small slither of an island compared to to the United States, um, but still 210 billion. And I always said, as I was kind of recounting and looking at COVID, is is if if the public got an alert on their phone saying the government is about to spend this money and you're going to end up, because we are going to end up paying yeah. for it at some point. Well, we, actually, we might not. We'll come on to that. Why yeah. We might not actually ever end up paying for it ourselves. But theoretically, someone is going to pay for it. I wonder if we got a little notification. You know, like sometimes you buy stuff online in a shop and your online bank pings you and says, this you, and it's like a security two-factor authentication. You press yes. Imagine that was happening during the course of COVID. It's like, this is going to cost you £10,000 in tax next year. Are you are you going to accept this payment? And particularly yeah. when you start to see what they were spending money on. I mean, I'm, again, sorry, Sam, I'm taking this conversation into an entirely separate. Episode. Well, there were no, there are so many angles. <laughs> As we know, I said, I said, I gave a talk. You know, I gave a live talk last night. I always press you my talks, Dan. I mean, people who've been to a few understand that. But almost every sentence I say, we could then go and do a rabbit hole. <laughs> yes, you know, yes. on that. And some of the, I'd love to, but we're trying to stay on. Yes, one I'm topic type. Yes. No, I'm with you, man. Yes. I'm tired today. Yeah. But yeah, so the point is that, yeah, the, 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 where the money was spent is an important conversation, but it's it's not what well, is not relevant, today. but it's not, yeah. it's not today's conversation. But the fact that this amount of money in the magic money tree was spent, um, effectively, it's creating debt. So, <laughs> you know, d- during the course of, and that's the important thing is that, you know, when, when people hear about the government spending money, the big question is, where is that money coming from? Because if I'm starting to spend more money, then very clearly I look at my bank accounts and, and, and I'm limited by how much I can spend by the number in my bank unless I then borrow more money. And the same is true for the government. So if they're going to spend more money than they currently have in the Treasury, then that money has to come from somewhere. So in the course of this episode, we're going to look at two of the primary ways that money supply is increased how money is literally created and there's there's, there's two primary ways we'll do that but we're we're talking about the government at the minute we're talking about this like mad spending that the government have gone through which is is debt so hopefully that analogy of your person if you think about your own personal bank account you know it, it, it's interesting to watch people at the end of the month when you know they well there's more there's more month than money so you know you're not going out as much and then you know the, the first of the month or whenever you get paid comes in and everyone starts spending it again. It's this cycle. And if you want to spend more, you'll need to borrow it. So it's an overdraft or a credit card or a loan, but you're limited by what you you currently hold. Now the government, that you would be credit scored <laughs> and you, you, your, your ability to access finance is limited based upon your credit history and various factors. <laughs> but the government in their 13 trillion or however much they've borrowed in the US and hundreds of billions in the UK, where, where's the credit scoring on that one? How is the government able to print so much money, borrow so much money in order to, to inject this into the economy? You know, if you were assessing the, the UK and the US governments on their ability to repay these debts, that's a fascinating conversation. And the, re- the rebel in me, Sam, and again, I'm deviating again slightly. This is, I really had two minutes, three coffees. <laughs> three coffees in, go on, yeah, a three coffee three, deviation, yeah. hit me. The, the revolution. <laughs> You want to create a revolution? Take a run on the banks. No, take a run on the government. The government is so indebted now that you know they do not have the capacity. So, again, breaking this down in simple terms, 
your ability to spend as an individual is largely determined by your earning capacity and your ability to access debt. The same is true for governments. So if you earn a salary from your employer, or even if you're self-employed, like myself, I pay, you know, I'm paid a, a salary from the company, you can then spend that on a monthly basis on you know, your bills, and et cetera, et cetera. And if you've got a surplus at the end of the month, you can either blow it all on something or you can put it into, into savings or whatnot. The same is true for the government, but it's, it's scaled up, it's aggregated. So the way we look at uh, income at the government level is known as GDP. It's, a, it's called gross domestic product. It's basically a reflection of, of all the um, money that has been created, all the value that's been created in the, in the national economy. And the same is true. So if, theoretically, the government shouldn't be able to spend more than their gross domestic product. Or in, in simpler terms, it shouldn't be able to spend more than it's, it's accumulating as, in taxation as a result of that GDP. But what's happening is we're seeing enormous amounts of debt beyond the GDP. So what that means is effectively, like you and I, if I was to overspend this month, if I was to go radically over my earnings, I would be creating debt. I would have to borrow that from somewhere. I'd have to create that money. Now, I don't have that magic tree where I can create money out of thin air. I would have to, if I overextended myself, go to the banks, go to um, the market, go to friends, family to make sure I cover my shortfall. The government, however, has a different mechanism. So let's talk about how the government create money. Sam, do you want to pick up the, the, the button on this? No, well, well I heard that about you for the technicalities, but I think just that absolute key thing that money is debt, that our modern money system is debt. And I think that's the big eye-opening thing for people that, as we'll come to, that every you know, unit of currency creating the system has, has, you know, is owed to somebody, has debt attached to it from its creation. So in the most simplest form, if you look at a, you know, and I, I mean, look at for any any country, but I was talking about the US, it's the easiest one to get the metrics for. You look at that chart of, you know, money supply and national debt, and it's almost a completely identical chart. You know, the absolutely overlay the two graphs is the same. Basically, you know, more money supply is increased, the national debt goes up. It's just, it's just a complete correlation. So it's important to understand that. And in terms of um, just the bigger picture, debt is a huge tool of control absolutely vast of growth. And John Adams, who's second president of the United States, put it very clearly. He, he stated, you know, many, many years ago, there are two ways to conquer a nation and it's to conquer and enslave a nation. Okay. One is by the sword and the other is by debt. So once you've understood that and you've understood this, this, this currency system is about, is, is debt, is a debt-based system, you can see what a powerful tool that is over the people and over other nation states. And, you know, I'll be careful not to go in my own tangents. I want to move back to you and just look at those pure money me mechanics. But, you know, anybody wants to understand how in the modern world, this financial system being used to conquer countries, essentially, it's been used in an imperialistic manner. I really recommend John Perkins book, which is the Confessions of an Economic Hitman, because there was somebody working for a private consultancy firm who, you know, had an awakening and wanted to sort of blow the whistle on what he used to do was, you know, really being a, a private sector arm of the Federal Reserve and the US government going to in debt other nations to enslave them and conquer them and use different tactics and you know using the World Bank using the IMF using loans so debt as a tool of control over both countries and people is huge okay and I just wanted to encapsulate that that was critical to understand that that, that debt it really is a tool of control when it when it's used in that manner yeah I mean that book for me is one that if you if you are skeptical about how money makes the world go round and how 
to what degree people are corrupt and to what extent people go to 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 achieve their own aims and interests at all costs, including cost of life. It's a real shocking book, um, mm. you know. So if you're if you're you know if you know someone who's you know generally skeptical about all of this stuff around the centralization of power and the role of corporations and big money. Get them to read that book. Honestly. Oh, no, it's really accessible, Dan, and, it, and it's yeah. you know it, it's it's all their reference, and it it'll make a lot of sense about stories that you're aware of in South America, and you know stories about Venezuela and Chavez, and and, and you know so it's it, it's absolutely stories that you would have heard in the mainstream, and but it will just it will just make so much sense, you know, and it's all referenceable, and it it's it's really clarifies you know this this financial tool and the you know the involvement of the World Bank and the IMF. And all the tactics that go into that, and it's kind of like the, like we said, the modern, rather than being overtly invading countries, they're using these tools, you know, and the power of an economic hitman and his team and their different tactics, you know, and it, and it's and like I said to to the masses, it doesn't look like an invasion, but essentially it is, you know, it's, it is it is destroying a country from the inside out without actually sending an army over the border. So I think it's an incredible book to to read yourself or to pass on to people who you think are curious about understanding what's going on in the world. Definitely. We're playing a little bit of economic pinball during this episode. Yeah. Some topics. Yeah, we'll, yeah. Back to money. Yeah. Money creation done. Yeah. So, um, so on the point of debt then, so, you know, and these are rough numbers, but you know, again, using that example of how much, I think it's really easy when you bring it back to yourself, your individual self. And if you were to spend 10% more every month than you earn, what would happen over the course of a year? You would obviously get yourself in quite considerable debt. Now, what happens if an individual gets into debt? Well, if you get yourself in too much debt, you know, you get debt collectors, you get potential bankruptcies, you then have, you know, period of time in different countries, it's different, but in the UK, it's six years where you can't access credit again, uh, the severe penalties. If you get into so much debt, you can actually end up in prison in the United Kingdom. Um, but the UK government is... Uh, in debt, uh, doing exactly that. It's, it's public debt to GDP ratio is 110%. The US is, uh, I believe, 126%, over 125%. Depending on what source you look at, you know how accurate the figures are, uh, you'll see different numbers. But again, Japan is insane. It's like yeah. 300%. Yeah. But you can also look at the external, like I don't want to get too technical. So you've got the public debt, which is the debt within, within the nation. And then you've got external debt, which is debt owed to foreign countries. And foreign investors. The United Kingdom is 300%. It's one of the highest countries. Like England and France are close to 300%. The United Kingdom, rather, uh, and France. So it's huge amount of money owed overseas. Like huge amounts of money owed overseas. So that means that they've borrowed money from overseas investors. And that is always a warning sign. When you're, when you're, when you're no longer able to create capital in your own nation and you're borrowing outside of the, your borders, that's, a, that's, a, that's a, a, risk, a real risk sign. And fascinating when you actually look at some of these debt ratios. Um, and, you know, if, if I get into pure economics, we could debate all day long how useful these ratios are. But it's really good to get a very simplistic understanding of, as I mentioned, the same as it, when we bring it back home to how much you spend versus how much you earn and therefore what the gap is and how much debt you are. And obviously you're paying interest on those debts, which, of course, is, is, is also um, applicable here. Um, so the United Kingdom, massive amount of external debt. Um, versus what it's earning. So this is the important thing. C countries, governments are in huge amounts of debt. Uh, and, and, you know, the sort of numbers of debt that you would never be able to pay back in our lifetime. And, you know, if you take that to a personal level, the same could be true. Like if, if you get, 
you know, during periods in the banking crisis where banks were literally giving away mortgages without really even credit checking, not quite as extreme as that, but not, not, not far off, you know, putting people into positions where they would more than likely go bankrupt, lose their home and go through financial peril. We saw it. That's what's happening. Yet here we have the government borrowing an insane amount of money, both nationally through mechanisms we'll outline in a minute and internationally. So the country is in huge amounts of debt and debt that I just cannot foresee how it will ever be repaid. So the whole world, when we break this down, is based on debt because individuals are in more debt than ever before because of the access to credit through the system. And the access to the credit is where we go to talk about commercial banks or retail banks mm. shortly and institutions and how institutions also create money. But let's, let's address where the money comes from in the United Kingdom uh, or, or the United States. You know, how, how, how does the government print all this magic money? Well, it goes to the central bank. It issues um, the cash into the economy by um, selling um, bonds to the central bank. So the central bank is buying a bond from the government. So the, bond, the, the, the government issues a treasury-backed bond. And that money is then given to the, 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 essentially given to the governments by the central banks. So it's, the money is effectively being lent by the central bank to the government, which is then put into the economy through government spending. So that magic money tree is, is, is the relationship between the government and the central bank. And that's how the money is created in one, in one level. But of course, that is a debt. That is a debt that at some point will be repaid and it, it, it attracts an interest rate. So um, many people who hold government bonds, because the other way that the government can issue uh, bonds is it can issue bonds into the public sphere through the open market. You can you can invest in a government bond. And yeah, we were looking at the bond prices right we now. Were, yeah. yeah, Ukraine. Ukraine is like insane. Like if you want to yeah. get a huge another tangent, another tangent. Yeah, interesting. Ukraine, thirty percent on a yeah. Ukraine bond. They're obviously trying to attract capital into Ukraine um, and, and various other countries. And it's interesting to look at the BRIC again deviation. BRICS countries yeah. uh, look at the, the the yield on on those those bonds. But basically, you're being paid an interest rate in return for. Lending, you're effectively when you when you hold a government bond, you're lending money to the government, which it then spends back into the economy. So it becomes this real circular debt uh, flow. So the money tree that the government creates is is it works through the issuing of bonds. And when it issues a bonds, either to the public or to the central bank or to um, foreign investors, that's how it creates that inflow of capital. And cash, by the way, we talked about how, how uh, is cash really king? Cash is roughly 3% of mm. the overall money in circulation. Yeah. So, and, and I worked in banking. I mentioned this. Now, we would have people come into the bank and say, I want to see my money. Believing that in the safe, behind the scenes is like a box with all their money in. Like even in this modern day. And people still think that, that their money is held in a safe, in a vault. And if you, if you were to go to your local branch of the bank, like all the money from all the people in your town is in that, is in that safe. I can tell you, it's not. It, it, a very small amount of money is held in those safes. Um, so your money is a number on a screen. There's only 3% of overall money supply because there are, there are four types of money supply. We won't go, we, well, we might do later, but there's, there's different definitions of money. And only... 
around about 3% of the overall money in society, circulation in society is, is paper notes and coin. Only 3%. It's a really small amount. Um, now, this brings us to talk about the second way that money is created. So if we're talking about money held in the bank, let's say you've got £1,000 in your bank. Now, what your bank can then do because of the fractional reserve system, it means, all that simply means is, if you think about the term fraction, all it means is that the bank is not required to hold the full amount of your money. If it did, it may have <laughs> all of the money you need in the, in, in, in the, in the vault. But, but the, the reality is it doesn't need to hold on to your money. So the money you place into the bank, they don't hold on to that. They lend that out. They're, they're actually this, based on capital reserves and how much they have to hold in, in the banking system, which has varied over the years and got smaller and smaller and smaller. Um, you know, it's no longer backed by how much assets they actually have to hold, which is why when there's a bank run, there's a real problem because they don't actually have enough money to repay you. Um, but let's say hypothetically, you put a thousand pounds in the bank and just keep real simple numbers. Let's say the bank has a 10%, only requires to hold 10% of your capital. Therefore, it can then lend 90%, £900 to another consumer. Now, what does that consumer do? Well, they take that £900 and then they deposit that into another bank. And guess what then happens? That other bank goes, thank you very much, Mr. and Mrs. Customer. Now we've got this £900. Well, we can lend up to 90% of that out to another customer. So day by day, new money is created by more debt entering into the market. So when you suddenly realize that all money supply really is, is debt, and that central banks are continually increasing the money supply through the issuance, uh, through the purchase of bonds into the system, and that's how the government prints money. So when people talk about printing money, they're almost thinking like mm. printing new notes and coin. And that does mm. happen, but it's only a very small amount of the cash. And then you as the consumer, you go into the commercial retail banks, you deposit your money, and then the bank doesn't have to hold all of that money in, in capital, it lends it out. And so it goes. Now, the question then becomes, can you lend, you know, is it possible for an infinite amount of money to be created? That would be an easy, uh, I mean, it may feel like it looking at the last few years. But still within the um, consumer banks, for you and I, the ability for us to lend is determined by several things. And I did reference the credit checking process earlier and the lax credit checking during certain periods in history, recent history. But the demand for loans is obviously a variable. So in order for that money to be lent out, you know, hypothetically, the bank could lend out almost all of the money that is deposited. And in fact, over the over COVID, the capital requirements actually dropped to zero, which yeah, meant that was fascinating. And it was March, you know, we had when, when did they announce the, you know, officially the, the, the pandemic, you know, March 20, 20th of March, was it 26th of March, the Federal Reserve in the United States, you know, made it made the reserves go to zero, which basically means you don't have to hold any level to lend leverage debt. So again, that that enabled the huge amount of, of, of um, money creation, you know, to go off the scale from that point. So exactly right. You say it fluctuates so there's times 3%, 10%, different times it went to zero in yeah, March so 2020. Definitely, which hypothetically means the bank that you hold your money with could lend out all of the money they hold, all of your money. Yeah, yeah, hold and, nothing, exactly, hold, hold nothing, nothing have go to the bank, literally empty, literally on their screen, zero, but they, they can actually create money. Yep, and, and, and if, there was, if there was a fault 
line in the banking system, as we've seen with the collapse of the Silicon Valley Bank and other banks recently. If there was a run on the bank during that time, you know, in lots of countries, they have asset back guarantee, which is, again, government guarantees. And there are flaws with some of those things, but it's limited. Plus, again, if, if the banks don't actually have the capital, guess what they do? Where do they go and get the capital from? That's right. The government central starts bank, again coming money, in again. Yeah, it's the, back the money, in. Yeah. So even if the money system collapses, all that happens is the money comes back in, which is also why the capital requirements in, in many ways. And, you know, I know some economics uh, economists might disagree with me on this, but it's flawed because, again, if the capital requirements start to waver or, or the bank exceeds the, the capital requirements set by um, the central banking system, they just go back to the central bank money through open market and they, they they bring more money in in order to firm up their balance sheet so they can continue to lend so then yeah. the money machine continues so the central bank then issues more money out and then it goes into the bank system which the is bank. 2008 done bank bailouts <laughs> totally okay. so these banks have been shut up and they've they've except, you know they've all collapsed well we just bail them out so that's going back to the money tree from the central banks and print some more money to flood in the system which is how they're keeping this ponzi scheme going you know it's been broken a long time, but you can keep it going by increasing money supply. I, I, I really like your analogy earlier that, you know, if you, as a, as somebody who's involved in this money, you know, all of us using this fiat currency, we should be getting a text alert going, you know, if you're sitting with your wealth in fiat currency, you want a text alert saying your, you know, your wealth has just been diluted by X amount today. Just let you know so you can plan accordingly. <laughs> yes. You know, and that's, I won't, we won't come into later, maybe I'm going to tangent, but that's where it's interesting. Like, say if you hold, you know, if you're somebody who holds Bitcoin, right? The key point about it is the supply. So you, of your asset, or even, you, even if you hold gold, you understanding that, you know, the reason has its value is its scarcity. A big news to your, your wealth and your investment would be if a huge, you know, it can't happen with Bitcoin, but that's the beauty of it. But if it suddenly said, oh, the supply's just doubled. Well, that changes what you're holding. But that's happening to people holding their wealth in fiat currency all the time. And a lot of people aren't aware of it. So exactly right. You should be told, you know, just to let you know you're sat with your wealth in this asset. Well, the supply's just been increased exponentially this week and again next week. And that would change how you view it as a, as a store of wealth, particularly. So I think that's important to understand. And yes. you know, that, that that's what's happening all the time. And, 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 and in these kind of times, really exponentially. Yeah. And so to break that down a little bit. So, you know, why does increasing the money supply um, devalue the money devalue or why does it create inflation? And then therefore, why does why does inflation devalue um, your money? So firstly, if there is an increase in money supply, let's just say I plonked an extra thousand pounds in your bank account today. Um, but uh, the price of goods was so high that they just they weren't desirable to you. There's all this extra money in the system. Um, but you're not going to spend it because inflation is so high. Things become expensive. So that, that's typically what happens where there's an inflow of cash. And this is radically oversimplified. But, but putting extra cash into the market drives up prices and it lowers demand. So um, the reality is where inflation and where there is where there is inflation, the interest rates go up in a very, again, very simplistically in order to make it in order to contract the economy because inflation going out of control means that you know um uh demand starts to fall and, and interest rates comes in to to, to 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 restabilize it but again that increases the cost of borrowing so again it does limit the credit creation process which is what we're going through right now but inflation itself 
inflation itself erodes the value of your money. And, and when we talked about is cash king, the important variable, yeah, we, we agree that privacy and sovereignty over our money is mm-hmm. key. But when you're not factoring in how much the central banks and governments can on demand shrink the value and purchase effectively purchasing power of your money. And I'm, I'm going to try and get some stats from our latest workshop as we go through this. That's, that's where things really start to break down. That's really where you see the house always wins. And that's why you see that this, this system is, is, is destined to fail. Now, you know, before well, it's cooked the... into it, Dan, absolutely. It's cooked, you know, yeah. and, and the fiat currencies have to fail that they cannot continue. And that's their whole history. They always rise and fall. They have to, it's, it's built in. You know, and I think that's where you're, you might have heard the term, you know, people out there, sound money. And a lot of people talk about, you know, originally gold and silver and metals being sound money and also Bitcoin as a as a response to the 2008 crisis and the money printing was about creating a digital version of sound money, almost a digital gold and silver, because, you know, sound money has qualities of scarcity and the ability to create new money having a cost. Now, if your ability to create new money into a system is very low and in, in, in the current system, it's basically nothing because, as you said, it's not even getting it's not even money, literally getting the money tree and cutting it down and making paper and printing them. There would be some actual cost. It is it is typing things onto a onto a computer I and mean, it's literally out of thin air. So when the ability to create new money and put it in a system is so inexpensive, that leads to a really flawed finance, you know, money system. So it, you, you, the important quality of sound money is that scarcity, and the the cost it would bring it, it would the cost of bringing new money into the system, and that's what makes currencies fail. And and and, and like you said, almost it's cooked in that these things have to come to an end. Yeah. So yeah. So to recap, the the reason why money printing increases inflation is because when the cash comes into the in, into the um, into the economy, demand for goods therefore increases. We pay, we pay, we, we go and buy more goods, but where supply, the supply of goods and services doesn't increase to match that, where there's greater demand than supply, then businesses can respond by increasing their prices. So that's, that's the economic model of how inflation is created by an increase in the money supply. So it's very easy to blame all of the problems we're facing right now on the conflict in Ukraine, but you cannot just take this giant rug and put it over the last three years through the gaping economic hole that has been created by these insane monetary policies. So pumping all of this money into the economy was always going to be inflationary. That's a fact. But it's also a fact that if you radically increase energy prices, almost everything is going to become more expensive because guess what? Cost of production goes up. Like almost everything, food production, pro- physical products, services, you know, gyms, like, you know, anyone who's got a swimming pool at their gym will probably find they've lowered the temperature of your swimming pool to cut, cut their costs. If energy prices go up, inflation goes up almost across the board. And that's what we've also witnessed. And so not only do we have the economic uh, problems caused by the money supply increase through this ridiculous printing of money during the last three years, we then saw an ex- external shock that created a, basically a, a market manipulation that saw wholesale energy crisis, prices go through the roof. So now we've got this crazy inflation. We've got this crazy inflation, which is eroding the value of your cash as we mm. speak. Um, and to give you some examples, I'm just going to take this from our um, our recent workshop. Let me see if I can take the uh, from the Navigate the Financial Reset, where we actually shared the impact of uh, inflation um, in, in with some actual numbers. 
So, yeah, it, the, the value of your money, it, it, if over, t- over 20 years, if you had a thousand pounds and the inflation rate was 3%, your, your money, your a thousand pounds 20 years ago would be worth 550 quid this, this, this day. If the inflation, if the inflation rate is 5%, your a thousand pounds 20 years ago would be worth less than 400 pounds. And to put it in simple terms, um, to, to, if, you were, if you were to spend £1,000 in January 2020 on your basket of goods, your, you, you know, your monthly, let's say your monthly expenditure, in order to get the exact same outcome today, just three years later, you would need to spend nearly £1,300. The costs of goods in the last three years alone have gone up 29% which means in order to match the inflation over those three-year periods, your £1,000 that you had in January 2020 would need to grow by an average of 8% per year. Now tell me, how many banks do you know paying 8% per year in savings? How many investments do you know that are paying 8%? In, in, in? So the reality is your money is, your purchasing power of your money is ever decreasing due to inflation. And every mm-hmm. time the money supply is increased, your, uh, your, your purchasing power begins to decrease. So again, house wins. Um, But meanwhile, debts are astronomical, personal debts are astronomical, government debts are astronomical, and it's just numbers on a screen that keep increasing. So how are these ever going to be paid? And I looked at the United States debt. You mentioned the debt. Uh, The the country owes, uh, um, as of 2021, this is the 2021, I haven't got the latest figures, but just just to illustrate, um, the American government owed uh, the U.S. owed $28 trillion at that point. Who did it owe that money to? Because remember, where there's debt, there's someone who it is owed to. 33% was U.S. investors, including the public. 12% was the central bank. 27% was the government itself. So the U.S. government owed 27% back to the government. How does the government lend money to itself? Imagine that. Oh, I need some extra money this month, Sam. I'm just going to lend myself some money from the. the I'm just going to print some money. I'm going to. I'm going to add some zeros to my bank account on my computer, and I'm going to go spend some more money. Well, the government can lend money to itself because, you know, for instance, it has. It needs to pay social security and welfare. So one government department will lend money to the other in order, and it, it therefore creates more money. Uh, and 28% was to foreign government and investors. So. If this money, if there was a, if there was a run, sudden run on the government, they would have to be repaying its own citizens, 33% its own citizens, 12% back to the central bank, 27% back to itself, and nearly 30% overseas back to its overseas investors. Um, so we have to remember all of this giant money pile at some point, theoretically, should be repaid. Um, <laughs> but well, at, what- at a simple level, there can never be enough money in the system to pay back the debts you know and again i've got a i've got a great quote here from you know the governor of the federal reserve in 1941 said somebody called mariner eccles if there were no debts in our money system there wouldn't be any money okay money is debt so again how do you pay debts you print some more money that's got some more debt attached to it to pay off the previous debt so it is that's where you once you understand that you understand that the kind of you know the kind of game of musical chairs is built in when the music stops, pe- you know, people, their bankruptcies and failures are built into this system. You know, that's the sad reality. Yes. Um, and it's really important to understand that. And again, Dan, you've highlighted such simple things. But again, people aren't educated at this point. And I think the illusion can be for the man in the street that if I'm sat with that thousand pounds in my bank, 
they feel that they're in this secure, I always draw this line, but they feel they're in that chart, don't they? Because, yeah. you know, the volatility of asset charts scare people because there are ups and downs. They, you know, wrongly believe because they've not been educated that they believe they're in this straight line comfort chart of, I know where I am. You know, that's, and I understand that, what a feeling of, okay, I want to know where I am. I'm scared of my commodity values and my portfolio in any assets being volatile. But what they don't realize is they're in that downward chart without realizing yes. it. So it's a kind of stealth, you know, some people view inflation as a, as a stealth tax or as, as a, a stealth theft even. You know, so you've got that factor that's really important to understand of losing purchasing power. And the other aspect is because I think, you know, most of us understand we've we've got some bad actors high up in this pyramid that if you had governments literally spending that money in, in you know, very intelligent ways for genuinely to improve situation, that would put a different spin on it. But what we've also got is if you understand that they're creating money out of thin air, it's in their hands first. If they're not, then decide to use that in ways that, for instance, are just buying up, you know, through perhaps, you know, quangos or quasi non-government organizations or in the banker's hands. You know, the fact is a lot of what goes on in the world is that money comes in the system and a lot of top people are then using that money to buy up tangible goods, maybe land housing or investing in certain areas. So they're creating money out of thin air and then buying tangible real assets. But they're get so essentially they're they're increasing their the value of you know their asset pool for free with with money credit thin air and the inflation hasn't even kicked in yet and the inflationary effect kicks in for the people later on when that money supply effect the increased money supply is really being reflected in the economy so essentially that's why we see you know it's called the Cantillon effect of you know the top people benefiting in a sense from this system. And the people at the bottom of this the, the, the supply chain suffering. So that's why I always go back to that chart from when we came off the gold standard or the dollar came off the gold standard in 71, 72. The inequality, the wealth inequality gap just went exponentially from there, which showed that the rigged game, the house was winning from the system and the, and the people at the bottom of that system were, were suffering. So that's a really important part to understand about money creation, that when you combine that with nefarious agendas of bad actors it's an even bigger problem yes and yeah your point around how would we ever repay the debt well again bring it to a personal level like if you took out a loan and um you know it was in within your affordability you're effectively having to sacrifice um a portion of your earnings to repay that debt so you're effectively borrowing money now to pay for something today you're deferring the repayment of something so you can you can you can have the the, the joy and joy of convenience of the goods today but in in order to do that you you need the disposable income in order to be able to, to spend that so it means you're reducing your overall spending potential spending power um beyond that that debt now in order for you to then repay that debt let's say you borrow more than you can afford in order to repay that debt you then need to start you need to increase your earnings so when we talked when I talked about the government debt versus GDP, the gross domestic product, the only way that we'd ever uh, bring that back into to kilter would be for gross domestic product to increase. Now, of course, how how do we increase productivity in the economy? How do you increase your own earnings? If you increase your own earnings by getting a promotion or moving to a different company, you pay more. Theoretically, you are now adding more value to the marketplace, and that's why you are uh, increasing your earnings. So in order for the national domestic product to increase, the gross domestic product, we have to add more value, which means we need businesses to become successful, um, either the economy to grow. And how do we do that normally? Guess what? 
we lend money. <laughs> we lend money to increase. So that's again how GDP is, is it's intrinsically wired into it. So the, the the national economy is is built on debt, and it will always be built on debt because it's required in order to stimulate growth. Now, the counter argument to what I've just said is that perception creates value. So like if you were walking down the street and you saw two different cars on the street, one is a Rolls Royce uh, and the other is a Ford. They could be built on the same chassis. They're basically made out of the same materials, but because of branding, because of all these various influence factors, the Rolls Royce is worth 200 grand, worth priced at 200 grand and the forward is maybe 20,000. So it's 10 times as much. So perception, although, you know, I won't dispute that the quality of manufacturing parts, et cetera, may vary, but essentially it's a, it's a vehicle that gets you from A to B relatively comfortably with, you know, some luggage space in between. One might go slightly faster, one might burn fuel a bit more, but either way you get my point. But the perception of value is, is 10 times higher. So Again, when we come to the madness of money and the madness of how our economic system works, even in the way we uh, uh, create value, because if we were to go back to exchanging mangoes, if we were only exchanging mangoes and that's all we needed to survive, it'd be pretty straightforward to a degree. Like, because if you've got like mango X, it's like five times the size of mango Y, you might say- But we're say, bringing real value to the table, Dan. We are we? at least bringing that's... real value to the table. But where things then get- subjective it's like i don't want mangoes i want apples how many mangoes are worth in comparison to apples you know again then we're bringing like the ford to the rolls royce to the equation because who decides that a mango is superior to an apple or vice versa so all of this perception of value it is is plays a role in our pricing because we don't nominally exchange goods anymore we don't you know in in the scalable world that we live in now it's not practical for me to pay my bills by physically manufacturing something and then exchanging it with the bank in order to pay my mortgage. So we have the monetary system to, to give us a tool of exchange. But the, the pricing within a market is, and again, e economists will debate this to high hills, but the, 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 the perception of value is a social construct. So, or a psychological construct in many ways. And that's how marketing and advertising can increase the perception of value of certain goods. But the real value, you, you, therefore the potential earnings, if we increase the price of goods and demand to go with that, then we can increase the domestic product. But the reality is that is then stimulated by further lending. So the reality is like, if you and I were, were to, to borrow more money and we wanted to pay it back, we'd have to increase our earnings in order to pay it back or, or risk default. And if we default, um, it, it impacts our ability to, to get further credit and therefore it affects our ability. The only way, therefore, we can increase our own purchasing power is by increasing our earnings. But, you know, people will find that if you've got defaults or bankruptcies, it's even harder to get new positions in, the, in, in your career ladder, potentially. But the governments <laughs> are not subject to the same problems. But that said, runs do occur on the banks, runs do occur on governments. Governments can default, um, but the system is essentially rigged to prevent governments from defaulting because it would cause absolute carnage and, and chaos and disarray. It would cause, you know, if, if the UK government defaulted on its debt obligations at scale, 
there'll be riots in the street. So again, they go back to the banker, mum and dad, they go back to the central bank, print more money, in it goes, repay your debt, and it just extends and it extends and it extends and it extends. And it comes to the point from a philosophical question, does it even matter? Like, does it even matter? Like, it matters to you and I, if, you, if we're in debt and we can't pay our things, we feel it. But we're in an economy where literally money and value is manufactured. Yeah. <laughs> Yeah, and I think there's a, a sort of an extra layer within that structure support to highlight. Some people will be aware already, but a lot of people aren't aware that, you know, you're talking about governments creating money, but there's this overarching structure above them. So a lot yeah. of people are under the illusion that, okay, I feel the money system is flawed and, and this money printing is out of order, and, but they still may believe, you know, that they live in a democratically elected government. That's another rabbit hole we'd, we'd argue about. But they believe they live in a democracy and that it's the government doing the best it can making decisions. What, what some people won't be aware of, and particularly there's some great books to read when you look at it in the States, you know, but it's the same central bank system across most of the world now, is that these are private entities having a huge say. I mean, these sort of dominating say in this monetary creation and system. So we talk about the Federal Reserve. And again, the trickery, Dan, even the name, it's not federal. You know, so the, the, they've even obfuscated the fact and most people don't realize <laughs> the Federal Reserve, which we all think is part of the federal government is a private company, company yeah. overarching. Yeah. So anybody wants to go down that rabbit hole, particularly I'd recommend the book, you know, The Creature from Jekyll Island about the creation of the Federal Reserve in 1913 because it's pivotal to where we are today. And again, it ties into what happened potentially with the Titanic and people against it because you know, I've got another, heavy on quotes today, but I've got another um, great quote from an early US president somewhere. So is it? Yeah, so Andrew Jackson, I think, you know, in 1835, he actually shut down the central bank entity, another private entity that was the forerunner of the Federal Reserve. You know, he shut it down. And he said, and his quote was, the bold efforts of the present bank, meaning this entity at the time, has made to control government are but premonitions of the fate that awaits the American people should they be deluded into a perpetuation of this institution or the establishment of another like it. Now that he temporarily got on top of that, the establishment of another one like it was the creation of the Federal Reserve in 1913. So these are private entities. And we talk about, you know, people looking at the markets who are always waiting to hear what the Fed is going to say, not what the government's going to say. The government are waiting for the Fed to announce, you know, in their, in their meetings. We often have this regular thing, looking at the base rates. So the fact that these are private banking entities, essentially money creations that sit above governments, should also, going back to what your teacher said to you, you know, back in the day, Dan, if you understand this economic system, you'll understand how the world works, that we've gone above government, which is exactly what we're seeing across the world. So, you know, the buck is literally starts and stops with these private corporations, which yes, shows that, that anybody who thinks we live in a democracy, even if you believe in that, already proven that we live in a corporatocracy already. Yes. So I think that's course, crucial. Absolutely. And then above all of that, you've got the IMF, you've got the World Bank, exactly. the IMF, another another institution that's, that's that's lending money into the, you know, they, they, they are, their existence is to ensure that um, governments meet their obligations to keep financial stability, which means they're injecting more credit into the market. The World exactly. Bank. So you, if anybody needs that, you know, image of there's an overarching, you know, uh, banking parasite class sitting above governments there it is it's it's very simple to see once you've understood that and you can research it that these these things are not part of your even if you believe in the democratic process that's happening currently you know you may believe that they are pulling the strings where in fact it's very clear that the 
on in terms of money. And a lot of people said, I won't, I won't give that full quote, but you know, a classic quote is that I care not, you know, to, I care not who makes the laws of a land. Just, I just want to know who who controls the money, because who controls the money controls everything. You know, yes. above the lawmakers even, because they've understood that if you control the money supply, that's actually more power than controlling the law courts and everything. That is the absolute tool of control. Yes, and uh, well, Plato, if we're going to go quote crazy in our economic yeah. pinball today, then Plato says those who tell stories rule society. And so uh, on top of that, you've got the narratives, the yeah. narratives that determine. So, you know, whoever who owns the, yeah, yeah, sorry, Dan, but who owns the media? Those same people who own the, the <laughs> yes. bankers, you know, the bankers really, or that that kind of, um, you know, that, that entity sitting on top of that, exactly control the media arm. You've got both. You've got the actual functionalized way and your, create and you're you, you're controlling the stories around it totally. yes so we've hopefully demystified this system a little bit now for the economists watching i know we've oversimplified we've totally. we, we, Have to. we've we've cut corners in order to break it down into into a simplistic terms to help people understand so yeah i know we'll probably get some comments from economic purists and say well that's not quite right it's it's we, we've given you the crux of how the system works now the question then you know i'm left with is well this is madness and it is madness and what are we going to do about it? And, 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 and the question is, does it even matter? Like if governments are going out of control and debt and the whole system is just constantly inflating and it's just a giant bubble, will the bubble ever burst? If it does, who's going to pay the price? Um, the, the reality is that the government, remember that if you are a holder of government bonds and, you know, and a lot of people don't even realize when they are holders of government bonds, particularly if you use financial advice and you've got a, you know, a, a particular fund, you know, you can hold a bond fund that is invested in multiple global bonds, UK and otherwise, you might not even realize it, you put your money into it into a through a financial advisor into a fund, and you're actually holding government debt. Now, again, the reality is, you could any time, theoretically, demand that the government repays what it owes. And if enough people did that in the same way, if you got people queuing out of a bank, and we've seen it with the Silicon Valley Bank, as I mentioned, First Rock, uh, uh, is it uh, Northern Rock um, yep. uh, back in the day? You know, you know when, when people do go and queue to get their money back, it causes the collapse of the banking system. If people can queue to get their money back from the government, bear in mind, as I said, in, in, the, um, in the US, it's, you know, 33% is from the public effectively, the, the US public. That's, that's a huge amount of instability. But you know, it's hard enough to coordinate an activist campaign that alone to get everyone to go and demand their money back from the government if you wanted to collapse the system. But ultimately, the government owes you money. <laughs> if you, it owes the public money. Um, but of course, the government's role, the reason it, it brings money in is to expect to, to expand to, to, to spend. You know, we've pointed at the flaws of that COVID spending. And I, I, I do think if we were to get approval notifications on our phone like we do with our own personal banking um you know do you approve the government spending this money no no mm. no no um it would be fascinating to see but you know the, the the government does line its own pockets in a way and you know you, we can bring a whole pinball conversation around the bloated nature of governments and how much they get paid and MPs expenses and all that stuff but that that that's a, that's another conversation for another day but theoretically the government borrows in order in order to spend money on public services and to what extent it does a good job of that is it is a highly debatable <laughs> conversation and yeah. it also brings in like public private like yeah. capitalism socialism da, 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 
another one for another day. Yeah. <laughs> Wait, this, another... Is, this, is, this is a long trader for about 20 other episodes, then. Yeah. It is, yeah, it is. That's, <laughs> yeah. that's what it is, yeah. Coming up on the next yeah. episode. Yeah. Yeah. But, show, but I think your point going back to, and I, you know, I, I echo that, that we could get involved in, you know, we've oversimplified, but we have to. But that just shows the intrinsic problem of our society today, that the fact is you could have loads of economics and we could get in a room and we could all be like, it's so complicated and it's so confusing. And partly, you know, I, I go back to my A-level ec- economics with that teacher who wasn't inspiring, but, you know, I was falling asleep and getting lost in Keynesian supply side versus that it's so confusing that... It's but, so confusing, yeah. But the problem being that if the people involved in, in this economy don't understand it and can't understand it, that's not helpful because no one knows where they are. Yes. And, and I'm not saying that there's a simple answer to that, but that is intrinsically a problem in our society that people don't understand what they're involved with and, and how it's affecting them daily and, and that there isn't any education to try and simplify it or clarify it. And, I, you know, I'd always argue that's by design because it's a tool of control. But you've nailed it down that, that it is so confusing that no one is really trying to simplify it and be clear. And, you know, that's what we're trying to do. But that is an intrinsic problem, and that is a tool of control. As we talked about grey areas, no one really knowing what they're part of, how we got here. But at least shining a light on the fundamentals of it is helpful. You know, and I really like your idea of that alert. You know, you're not aware of what's happening to your own. You know, if you're storing wealth in this currency, you're not being aware of what's happening to the supply and what's happening to your wealth and how it's being eroded. And I always say this to people, the people who understand things much more do pivot based on these actions. So I always hark back to that, you know, 71, 72 time in the States when they came off the gold standard and, and, and went into a you know pure fiat system, no longer backbending, the money printers going off the off the scales, is that the people who understood what's going on acted accordingly then. Okay, yes. and that wasn't the man on the street, that was a lot of people moving into assets and you know, that's why you had a huge run up in the stock market the day after that announcement, because that was the money people who understood at least that they were losing value if they sat in fear. And then they need to move into assets. So at that basic level, there are important things you can take away without getting stuck in the weeds of you know debating economic models when the cows <laughs> come home because it is yeah. so complicated. And, you well, know. and that's exactly what we did in last uh, week's navigate the financial research. You know, we looked at five different asset classes of the cash, precious metals, gold, silver, etc. We looked at equities and stocks. We looked at bonds. We looked at property. We looked at crypto and how all of these intersect with the changes in the economy, whether it's inflation going up, interest rates going up. What typically happens historically when these things happen? Are we seeing the same patterns? What's the likelihood of a recession? We looked at all of this stuff in the last workshop because that's the key thing. When you realize you're in an inflation, there are certain variables that are playing out right now. We're in economic uncertainty with geopolitical conflict, with high inflation, high interest rates, high uncertainty. These are not, they might feel unique within our lifetime at the scale of which we're experiencing these things, but these things have all happened before. Um, Yes, today we live in a globalized world and a digital world, which bring whole new variables. Structures have grown, you know, from monarchs and kings to, you know, glass towers, et cetera, and shadowy organizations. But power, power structures have always remained inequalities have always existed um the the mechanisms of the market have changed over time but the ability to look through history to help us understand where we are today is powerful now the past doesn't equal the present or the future necessarily it isn't necessarily a predictor but it can give us some indication so that's the key thing when we are looking at the fact that we know we're in economic uncertainty we know we've got high inflation we know we've got high interest rates we know we've got geopolitical instability we also know we've got 
Uh, we're, we're potentially at the tail end of a macro big cycle, as we've talked yeah. about before, shifting you know, from a dollar reserve into a potential another reserve, whether it's bricks or Bitcoin or something else. Yeah, these are patterns that have happened in history. And therefore, when we start to zoom out and start to see what's happening, that's where we can get informed. And you're absolutely right. The simple thing right now is knowing that inflation is really high, which means that day by day, your purchasing power is decreasing. So holding your money in cash, whether it's physically in your wallet or in a safe or on a computer screen in your bank, means that your actual, your real value of money is decreasing every mm. single day. The amount you can purchase for your pounds and dollars is decreasing every single day. Now, here's, here's another, I don't know if this exists, and if someone knows that if this does exist, here's, here's when we're talking about like the difference between what money is worth today and what it was worth three years ago or 30 years ago, clearly your 20 pound note doesn't adapt in real time. <laughs> you know, you don't see the number in the corner starting to go down. A 20 pound note is a 20 pound note. That's the difference between a nominal value and a real value. So your 20 pound note, the nominal value of 20 pounds is always 20 pounds. A 20 pound note is a 20 pound note. But the nominal value is different from the real value. The real value takes into account the purchasing power that comes as a consequences of the rising prices of goods. So it would be fascinating if you did get an alert on your phone to show you how much your money today is worth versus yesterday or a year ago. And I'm sure there must be an app that shows you the, the, the downward trend of your money in real time. Because if you're holding all your money in cash, in the bank, even if it's in a savings account, it's going down. And as I yeah. showed you, as I explained, in the last three years alone, you would have to be making 8% or more in annual returns in order to outstrip inflation every year. Yeah. Yeah. Now, there are not many savings accounts that will do that. And there are not many investments that will do that. Property might do that in places. Some stocks might do that. Business may allow you to do that if you're self-employed. But you've got to think about this. If you're holding all your money in cash right now, you think that's the safest thing to do. Well, it may be safe in the sense that, you know, there's, it's the stock market, if it crashes, you might see a huge erosion of value and, and, and any, any other asset class. But, but this is the importance of diversification of your assets. And this is, this is why, it's, you know, if you hold all of your money in any single asset class, whether it's cash, precious metals, crypto, property, you become over leveraged in those areas. Any shock to any of those markets, you could be screwed. That's why it's important to have a highly diversified portfolio if you have uh, readily available assets and uh, to be thinking about your purchasing power in the face of an inflationary totally, time. Totally, Dan. And, and, you know, I think I showed it in the last, you know, workshop we did last week for the Navigate Financial Reset support group of, you know, and I encourage anybody to look at this, look at the GB, if, you look, if you're, you know, UK centric or you're in the US, but if you're, Look at the GBP versus gold chart since 1971, okay? And what you'll see is your purchasing power against gold has gone down 99%. So if that time you moved your wealth out of pounds or even if you're in dollars into gold, you know, you'd have protect you, you're 99.8% you know, down in purchasing power. So I always give the, you know, I always forget the exact figures, but literally, you know, if you'd have moved your wealth into gold that time and sat in gold, you protected your wealth exponentially over this period. And I think that's the important point that, you know, people don't realize, always say they think they're in this chart. They don't understand that they're in this chart with no upside. And so it's also being very clear about what you want to transact in or what you want to store wealth in. Because that's where, you know, the cash and the fit has that power of transaction and particularly with talking about cash, that privacy. But we we'll always ask this question, is it a good store of wealth? 
And what people don't understand what's going on and people who are, you know, get clear on this, they're always about moving their, their wealth into safe havens or safer havens or, or areas that are going to protect it or potentially grow it as well. That's the other aspect. So it's, it's, raw, it's more about looking at it. Where do you store any of your wealth? Because what is your wealth? That's your time and your effort and your output over time that you may have put aside. And the danger of particularly of sitting in cash is that's already been happened. But we're also, as we talked about, because of all the cycles, we're in a financial reset period. No one knows how that's going to play out exactly. But as we've discussed today, these fiat models have to come to an end. And you'd argue, you know, that's why they're going to reset the system at some point. Perhaps we are going to have a kind of reset that wipes off a lot of these debts and starts again. And that can be combined with potentially CBDCs and that bleeds into that agenda. But understanding that that's always been the case and, and now more than ever is critical to understand. I think that's why we're trying to shine on it. And now particularly, Dan, is that now more than ever, we're seeing currencies fail. We're seeing Turkey hit hyperinflation. I saw, you know, I was in a group with other Turkish people. They, they were absolutely clamoring to get into gold and silver because they yeah. were hitting 80% inflation. Argentina this is happening across the world. And often we talked about it with 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 um, Jordan from, from the Bitcoin Collective that people in those countries, it becomes very, very clear and the pain's hitting them. The pain is here in the West and here in the UK, but it's less obvious. But I'd say if you understand it ahead of time and earlier, before you're really feeling it, that's where you can make moves and, and adjust and pivot to protect your wealth through this time. I think that's really important to understand. Yes. And yeah, we looked at all of that in the last workshop that we, we, we hosted and I shared five different warning signs of a potential recession because how assets perform in and out of the recession is different, um, both pre and post and knowing what to do before a recession hits, what happens during a recession and what happens after a recession. It's like, how do you, how do you prepare for a storm? How do you weather, how do you weather a storm when it's, it hits? And then, and then, and, and how do you rebuild after a storm? Knowing these things is important, but you were right. Absolutely. During that workshop, we talked about how, even though there's those five recessionary markers, key markers that show a potential uh, recession. If you want, if you want to see that presentation, just go to weareelevate.org forward slash NFR. Um, um, it's stored in the in the vault of the program. But the um, caveat I shared is that this isn't a normal economic shock. Mm. We've gone from COVID, an external shock, and we've gone from the Ukraine and and others that have, have caused this. So it's possible that those those market shocks can destabilize and cause a recession, but it's not coming from normal economic forces. So there's all of these uncertainties that exist and it's how do we navigate those uncertainties and how do we prepare? I think the simple message is this diversification and, and, and knowing how assets, different assets perform historically will give you some clues. And we, we covered that in last week's workshop. Now, the other piece is we've been talking about debt. We've been talking about money supply. We've been talking about government debt. But we also know that consumer debt is insane. So you might be watching this saying, Dan, you're talking about diversification of assets. I don't have any assets. I've only got liabilities. I've only got debt, the liability. So the next piece is then is how do we free ourselves from debt? Like how do we free ourselves from uh, poor quality debt? And poor quality debt is not necessarily down to the institution you're borrowing it from or how much you're paying from the debt. That does play a role. But it's if you're borrowing money for, for aesthetics, if you're borrowing money for okay home improvements lovely great we all we, you know not buying a new car these are all great things but if you're borrowing money at a percentage that you can invest in something that'll offer a greater return for example starting a business and at times where you know right now lending is expensive so actually borrowing more money and if you've got debt that like mortgages that are going to renew at a higher rate 
that can be really problematic. And again, that's something if you're on a mortgage right now that's going to expire, like ours is renewing next year, we're starting to plan ahead. What's it going to be? Could it be 6%, 10%? It could, you know, it could be double digits by next right. year. It could potentially, you know, and if, if you're, if you're similar age to, to Sam and I, you may have never lived through double digit inflation interest rates, but look through history. They've happened plenty of times again, during inflationary times like this to get inflation under control. So again, history can show us the way, but um, if, if you are, have more liabilities and assets, and in week one of the Navigating Financial Reset, Sam, we did that exercise, didn't we, to calculate our net worth, which is look at how much you have in holdings and various different assets, including property, and look at what your current debt is to see if you're in positive or negative. That's a useful exercise to do, calculate your net worth. But if you realize that you have more liabilities than assets, then your focus should be on asset accumulation. How do you, how do you increase your income? How do you increase your earnings? Yeah through increasing your skills, knowledge, expertise, or, 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 or starting a business, starting a new project, because this is the time. When we're entering into a time like this, where there's high inflation, instability, high interest rates, potential recessions, this is where people who start businesses during these times, even if they can weather the storm, they're the ones that grow exponentially at the back end of the storm. So now right. if you're looking at, if you're in a phase where you need to think about asset accumulation, Start thinking about how do you increase your earnings in order to do that. Um, so there is all kinds of things that we can do during times like this. If you, if you have more liabilities right now, then you need to be making assessments of how you can get the best deals. Um, bearing in mind that you know mortgage rates are likely to increase, um, but if you have assets available right now to invest, then you know you want to be outstripping inflation. It's very tough. We looked at five different asset classes on the on the workshop, um, Sam, where we, we looked at it. the last three years alone, if you put 10,000 pounds in any one of these five different assets, even if they'd increased in value, and let me, let me see if I can give let's see if I can pull up the actual data so I can give you the, the, um, the, uh, the, the insight. Um, even if you put money in a UK-based stock, stocks portfolio that went up 7%, as I mentioned, needs to be going up 8%, your real value would have decreased. So even with a 7.5% return, you would have actually lost money in real terms. The only two assets that we looked at that had made, and again, this isn't limited. We didn't look at every asset. We'd be there all day. But a global equity fund that, is, that, that, that looks at global stocks connected to more thriving economies that may have returned 25% over that time would have increased your real value. Similarly, a UK residential property over the last three years may have increased your value by similar amounts. So you actually end up up. But cash earnings at zero interest, you would have lost 16% of your, your capital in real terms. 1% saving fund, not, <laughs> similar story. So understanding how to uh, allocate your assets during this time is key and also yes. understanding how to increase your earnings. And again, it all depends on your different stages of life. But these are things that we can look at. Um, Sam, I'll let you comment. And I've got some yeah, well, ed well, education is, is the key, isn't it, Dan? Because yes. not burying one's head in the sand and ignoring, again, always says even, even outside the nefarious agendas, the cycles, the boom-bust cycles, what we're going through, looking at it, get educated, means you can pivot and act accordingly and improve your situation. Now, I understand that people don't want to face it. It seems like too much. But the way people really suffer in uh, financial resets or re-turbulent economic times is they're they're sort of living in an old model and not adapting, not changing. I always try and say this, that people who have been adaptable and, you know, pivot and able to, you know, navigate have always been able to make moves that improve their situation. There is no panacea. There is no right answer. There is no just do this, you'll be fine. But I always think you can be on a better footing. I always think, can you take more control 
and more decentralize your income streams, your assets, so that you're less at the whim. And you talked about it, Dan, that a big part of control is being, they want people as much dependence and debt as possible because that is control. And that is being at the whim of central banks and, and monetary policy. Now, I'm not saying that, you know, everyone can free themselves from that overnight or that maybe somebody are really in that, you know, in that hole, but it's, it's looking at it and trying to improve your situation. You know, and again, education, I always give Bitcoin as an example because it's such a glaring example. A lot of people who don't understand, you know, asset classes, if we go back to that idea of sitting in fiat currency, if, if somebody sit in fiat currency from 2020 to today, they'd have lost purchasing power. Like you'd argue in different countries, but, you know, maybe they're around 20% down there. You go that figure 16% down, but it could be, you know, between 50 and 30% in terms of in, in terms of loss of purchasing power, whereas they believe they're in that straight line. They've, they've just held value. And a lot of those people believe that anybody put their money in Bitcoin in 2020 because of the news cycle controlling the story is, yes. I've heard this story, I've told you many times that people say, oh, you're in crypto, you've lost all your money. Everyone, oh, I'm glad I didn't buy Bitcoin. But even after Bitcoin's, you know, bear market correction from its all-time highs, if we just went from 20, March 2020 to today, if you put your money in Bitcoin, you know, cash, fiat currency, you're maybe 20% down with inflation. Bitcoin, you're 10 times up. Yes. And that's after a huge correction in a bear market from the all-time highs of 69,000. So I'm not here to say you must buy Bitcoin as you do, but look at what moving into an asset class did that has growth. Yes, it's volatile and that scares people. But look at the growth curve of assets. All assets are volatile, but have they got a growth curve in them versus the fiat, which isn't the growth curve, it's the opposite, inverse growth. It's it's that chart going down. So always want to shine a light on that because once you can educate yourself and get clear on those things, it gives you a different perspective. And then you look at things differently. So until you're able to see things how they are, and clearly, how on earth can you make good choices? And they don't want you to see things here. So I think that's what we really hope we can do is just shine a light on things and make it clearer so that then you can make more empowered decisions. Because if you're making decisions off of bad info and of obfuscation and, and of pure media manipulation, then that is, you know, your that is the trap you've fallen into. You need to make those decisions based on really clear, defined, good information and and the realities of things rather than the manipulative narrative, which is so powerful. You said, Dan, you said those two control structures, control the money supply, control the story, then you are they are corralling people wherever they want them, not based on the realities. And I think get clear on the realities and, and you can act accordingly from there. Yeah, I think that that's the key. Complex, to me, complexity creates control because... Yeah. Um, it's the same in any industry, whether it's finance, law. You know, the reason why these professions are huge is because they maintain complexities so that the yep. average person cannot navigate it themselves without yep. professional support. Um, totally. so, so complexity creates that. But I talked earlier on, you know, how Plato says those who tells the stories rule society. That's true. Those who create the narratives rule society today. But even in the context of what Richard Werner said about um flawed social sciences of, of the economics model economics like many other social sciences and even we would argue during the course of covid that science became a belief system it became yeah. like a religion um well that that is that is that is that is a problem because yeah. economics in a way is built on what is known as a axioms you know an, an axiom is an assumption that's believed to be true uh, beliefs and we have faith in these assumptions and beliefs and that's what creates our understanding of something but when you look at the economic models and who created those axioms and beliefs, guess what? And it's the same in big pharma, big food. The beliefs we have, the axioms that we hold, 
are created by those who stand to gain mm. from those beliefs and axioms. Look at the yeah. safe and effective story. Who stands to believe? Who stands to gain from that story? You know, it's it, once we start to realize those who tell the stories rule society, those who control the narratives, control the world, we start to realize that when we can simplify things and see things as they are, not worse than they are, then we can start to navigate where we're at. And then, as I've said previous times on this podcast, that we start to see things better than they are, meaning we start to carve a path for ourselves. We start to see a better world. We start to see a brighter future for ourselves. And we start to set course towards that because Sam's absolutely right. The reason we call this Uncharted Territory podcast is because we're in this vast unknown. We're trying to make sense of it because in order to navigate, we've got to be able to get our compass out and say, where are we? And then yep. we've got to see where are we heading? And, and, and our goals, our desires, our, our future is in our hands when we determine for ourselves where we want to go. But first we yep. need to know where we are right now and then, then where are we heading? And then we start to draw a map uh, to, to help us get there, and, and that's then you're exactly... on, then you're on your course rather than a course yes. being plotted for you. And again, that's the that's the whole trick, which is the manipulation is actually plotting a course and and almost like a funnel that you're just gonna, you know, almost like if you're in that flow, they know where they want to drive you. You can plot your own course. You can go on that. You can be an outlier. But as we always said, it takes work. It takes effort. But that is the you know the, the more sovereign path. You know, taking as much control back into your hands doesn't mean that, of course, outside effects are always going to play a role in your life. But the more you can do that, then the more you are the driver in your destiny, in your course. And that that comes on a, you know, we can argue on a spiritual level, on all levels, but even on a financial level, I think it's important yes. for that. So that you're not, you're, you're not just um, somebody being buffeted by their waves. You're actually riding your own waves. And you always give that analogy rather than being smashed by a big wave on the beach. You're going to paddle out and you're going to surf it yourself you're actually going to use that energy and understand it and be in control rather than just be a victim of things i think getting out of that mentality which is where they want you because you're easily controlled and easy easy manipulated is the, is the kind of shift and that shift can come into the all facets of your life but when we look at the financial aspect you know taking back as much control and, and trying to drive your own boat and plot your own course that's that's critical then yeah, I want to add another point on this, which I think is of critical importance, because when there's fear, uncertainty and doubt in the market, we call it FUD, when there's FUD in the marketplace, um, that's, that's, you know, it's not just these big central powers that are manipulating the system for their own advantage. During times like this, this is where we see get rich quick schemes, scams yeah. to a penny. I get pitched yeah. every day on something new that is essentially some sort of Ponzi or, or scam. Um, in fact, if you're watching on my YouTube channel, on my Facebook um, profile, someone someone created a duplicate Dan Aston Gregory profile the other day, a fake a fake profile, and started saying that if you send me X amount of Bitcoin, I'll send you three times back. And I'm now, I'm still waiting for it, Dan. I've sent you a Bitcoin, <laughs> and, I won't, and so I've, I can I can assure you it's a scam. So I'm still waiting for my three Bitcoin back. <laughs> yes, but you know this is where people start to in, in these environments people lose the the, the filter. Yeah. Yeah. Like, if, 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 like, just put it into common sense corner, Sam. If I said, "Give me ten quid today, and I'm going to give you thirty quid tomorrow," you'd say, well, "Why would you do that?" Like, yeah. you know, why? You're would right. You do... There's opportunities, <laughs> and again, it's it's really sad because it's playing off people's fear, and you know, people did lose income streams in 2020, and I've seen it. It's very sad, even amongst the kind of you know freedom movement. There are you know obviously people trying to cash in on that. There are people aware that they're in trouble financially, different, and they're they're promoting all these kind of you know very cleverly dressed up Ponzi schemes and, um, you know, things offering you yield, you know, passive yield on investments. And a lot of people unfortunately get sucked into that. So it's, it's important to be wary. And to be always say this, don't be acting out of fear. 
act out of improving your situation in a positive way and don't get involved with things you don't understand. Because I've seen that happen a lot last, you know, people I've met and people I've even helped come out of scams, Dan. You know, it's one of the saddest parts of work I've done, but also I'm very happy to have done it because I've saved people money by saying that, showing them what it is. So don't jump into something that you don't understand because that's not more empowerment. You want to get more empowered. Every step you take improves your situation is clearer and you understand why you've done it. And I think that's that's very important. I'm glad you've highlighted it because, you know, don't don't be acting out of fear. And a lot of people, marketers are playing on that fear, saying, you know, if, if anybody offers you a deal and you don't understand where the values come from, then the value is coming from you and other people have been recruited for the deal. So when it's not clear where a yield's coming from and there's no real world value being created, then you understand the yield is coming from you and whoever signs up. That is a classic Ponzi scheme. But yes. they're very clever, and I've seen it a lot in crypto. Then, because because crypto is a new world, and crypto has got all this language around it, they're very clever to use all the crypto language. Someone says, "Yeah, I'm involved in crypto," but actually, they just use that language to obfuscate there being no product and it being really a multi-level marketing and a, and a, you know recruiting people and moving money around. It's another iteration of this moving the money around. There's no yeah. real new money being generated or no real value, and of course, when the music stops people lose out so yeah. be aware it's, of that and, and get that's why education is key isn't it yes and the thing is in those because on a micro scale it's a reflection of what we've just been talking about totally. but the, mu the music does stop and those you know that's just stop yeah, so um you know it's it's yeah it's important to be aware of these things and uh, uh, sam's point about don't invest in what you don't understand that's why education is key right now yeah. because you know, the, the world of finance, as we talked about, is complicated, it's complex. We're trying to simplify it here for you and in the, the, the different programs that we offer. But, but as a result, don't discount Bitcoin because um, a lot of the episodes we've talked about is, is, is the, the value of Bitcoin. We talked about it with Jordan as a store of value. A lot of people make it equivalent to a digital gold. You know, in, in times of uncertainty, inflation, people usually um, move to gold and physical assets for uh, security to hedge inflation. But there's also early indication that the same is happening with with Bitcoin and other other assets, other digital assets. So it's important to understand it. You know, the most common before you write it in the chat, the most common objection we says, what happens when the computers get turned off? If you're going to write that, hold your thoughts, go and watch our Is Cash Really King episode. We address that point. We address it over and over. We won't address it now again. Um, we may end another episode just because it's, it's, it's such a common objection. But it's, it's an important one to, to get your head around because... Um, on a big scale, you know, think about how do you exit this current fiat system? You know, Bitcoin was was created with that end in mind. And already, again, I'm not going to enter into a whole new episode here because there is a whole new episode to be had here. Yeah, it's another um, trailer. Here we it's are. another trailer is is this concept of agorism, which is counter economics. And people, mm. have been, people have been operating outside of the system with Bitcoin and crypto. Now that might have a limited lifespan. We've touched upon that. We'll talk more about it. But again, it's about thinking, even if you take Bitcoin off the table, it's localized, effectively localization and decentralization. That's the key to all of this. Yep. It's localization and decentralization, local economies, you know, whether using traditional means or digital means, you know, it's, yep. it's really decentralization. That's well, self-custody. And so I was all, often talking about this self-custody assets. That's a big difference. Whatever the asset is, if you're self-custody, you're in control of it. And that's Absolutely. what you can do with, you know, if you don't realize with crypto and Bitcoin, but as you can do, you know, cash at home is yours, cash in the bank is theirs. You know, you're not you're you're less at the whims of centralized policymakers or or events, and that's that's what gives you the power. And, and I say again, Dan, the education is whatever asset speaks to you. You if, if you know what you hold, and that's my issue. I think is is I see people they don't even know what they hold. 
So if you're holding cash and you understand its pros and cons, great, you're, you're empowered. You hold Bitcoin, you understand its pros and cons. So they all have pros and cons to them, all different asset classes. But understanding those pros and cons first means you have a good relationship with it. You know where you are. The biggest danger is not knowing where you are. You hold something you don't understand. If, you, if you're holding an asset, you don't understand why or what the value is doing or what it's based on, then, then you're, you're, you're not in an empowered state. So you're absolutely right, Dan. We can improve our situation by knowing what we hold, decentralizing as much as possible, self-custody, whether it's you know cash, crypto, um, gold, silver, all those things are improving our situation and are further decentralizing ourselves. Not saying that you need to be a panacea that you have to completely exit that system, but you've got more options and you've got you've got more control. I always say it's a roadmap. People, I think people get stressed by looking at what's the ultimate solution. No, it's just improve it step by step. Yes. Get in a better position than you were yesterday. And yes. if you continue that, you'll be amazed at where you can get over the years. Let's come back to that Tony Robbins quote. People, you know, really always stuck with me that people overestimate what they can achieve in a, in a year. And then they're frustrated and kind of throw the throw the cards. Oh, my God, it was too much. If, but actually underestimate what you'd achieve in five years. If you just continue trying to improve your situation, you'd be amazed at where you can go. Don't try and see the whole thing and try and get somewhere too quickly, but improve your situation and education and making moves. And I've seen it, people, Dan, in people I've, I've worked with or people I've given talks to. And I've seen people, you know, feel better about taking action and being proactive because at the end of the day you're out of victim mode aren't you rather than seeing the financial reset and everything's going on it's just pure victimhood they're doing this they're doing that what can i do and that goes for everything whether it's money or it's activism what can i do today and there are always things we can do to improve our own situation and that's that's the message i always like to to sort of end on Indeed. Yeah. And no, I think yeah, to, 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 to kind of underscore that, it, you know, it's what, what makes the difference is our mindset, our strategies and the yeah. actions and habits that we take every single day. And the key to all of that is our own self-growth and education. And, yeah. um, you know, so that's why we're here every week on the Uncharted Territory podcast, you know, hour and a half in economic pinball today. We've danced, we've danced around quite a few big subjects today, but I hope you found it useful. Let us know in the comments what you thought about today's episode. Please do share this because it's so important right now. You know, it, it, in, in a world of like whack-a-mole where there's like new issues popping up every single week, whether it's the WHO treaty or central bank digital currencies or digital IDs or, you you know, 15-minute cities or ULEZ zones, like it's easy to jump on like what's hot right now. But under the surface right now, we're, we're, we're in the financial reset. It's happening. So I saw it during the banking crisis of 0708. People buried their heads under the sand until it was too late. You know, looking back, I now saw, saw where I could see it coming. I could see it coming. And already I'm seeing it coming right now. Like There is there is turbulent times ahead. So understanding how to navigate what's coming is critical, which is why we record this show for you. So we're here every single week. So make sure you subscribe and share. And if you'd like to go deeper on crypto and digital assets, you can check out our Navigating the Digital Assets course. It's three-part course, self-study program. It will give you all of the fundamentals, the good, the bad, and the ugly, so you can at least be informed. And if you really want to understand how to navigate these changing times, then we've created the monthly uh, Navigating the Financial Reset group, where we, we gather twice a month to look at what's happening in the, in the wider markets, the, the macroeconomics that we've been talking about today. And we also look at what's going on in, in the world of crypto. With totally, and, and bring the practical side to it, because you know crypto is so new and emerging. And people, you know once you're involved in it, what's great about that program is we, you know, as you show, we I can give, give webinars, look at how to navigate these changes, how to how to practically maneuver, you know, in a really detailed way. So that's you've got that ongoing support. If that speaks to you, if you're or you may be already have some crypto and confused, you know, where I'm holding it, how will I use it in the future? How will I take profits the next bull run? So having that ongoing support is really useful. And 
And likewise, Dan, that continuity, which is why we did this, you know, podcast every week, but also why we have our program, you know, course twice a month is the continuity of these discussions. You know, I know I've always said it helps me to have, I've always, I've always built this into my life is, you know, discussion with people like yourselves, other mentors of mine, other, other people I work with, that continuity of keeping growing together, regardless of what other agendas are popping up, because they're always going to keep happening and get overwhelmed. But if we can continue the conversation, keep going, that almost is accountability for myself and each other to keep improving regardless. And all, you know, as I said, interested in what's going on, always, you know, trying to demystify it, decode what's happening, but not to a cost of improving my own situation and, and learning and growth through that. And I think that's where the balance is really important. We're always trying. It's a it's a challenging balance for us all in this space. But oh, I think yeah. that's where the richness is that we can do both. That we actually don't forget that we get busy because that's the one thing that nobody, no outside force or power can control is your own growth and improvement. That's what's in your hands, and that's you know as we've all known in our lives when we're doing well and growing whatever, then that starts to ripple out and have greater effect in our communities and in our own lives, our families. So that's something we can control and create. And I think trying to control the uncontrollable sends everyone crazy, you know, and, and, you know, let's, let's realize in short term, we can't stop the manipulators existing or the tricks is existing, but we can all, we can definitely stop ourselves being manipulated and tricked. Absolutely. And that's where it comes back to ourselves. Yeah. It comes back to ourselves. Keep it simple. Keep educated. Yep. And, uh, uh, that's how we can, we can, we can prosper through these times. So yep. thank you, Sam, um, our co-host today, th- a fantastic conversation. Again, we managed to make our way through it. We supposed to be retired after a big week. Um, we played a little bit of economic pinball, but there's lots of subjects there that we'll bring to the show. So again, if you haven't already subscribed, please do hit the subscribe button or whatever platform you're watching this on. Uh, do sh- do share this episode. We're, we're every single week. We've got a new conversation like this and you can see through the context of today's conversation. There's lots of different threads for us to explore. So let us know in the comments what you thought of this episode. What would you like us to cover next? Mm-hmm. There's lots of new opportunities for us there to, to bring new conversations to this show. Thank you very much for being part of this. And we look forward to seeing you on the next episode of the Uncharted Territory podcast. Mm-hmm.